Good morning, church. Would you remain standing for the reading of God's word? It comes from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those who entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, your faithfulness and holiness have cleansed and defended your church throughout the ages. Through countless years of persecution, during times of reformation, and into the modern era's social upheaval, you've preserved your church and will continue to preserve your church. Raise up new elders and leaders who will be godly examples. Even today, as we relaunch our children's ministry, we ask that you pour out your spirit upon all who are giving their lives for your work. Take their minds and think through them. Take their mouths and speak through them. Take their hearts and set them on fire with love for you. And may we be clothed with humility towards one another, that we may receive grace upon grace in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Patrick. You may be seated. How are you guys doing? Oh, that sounds good. (laughs) Man, I got to tell you a little story before we start. Um, You know, after my dad died, I was 14 years old, and uh, my dad passed away. And not too long after that, I decided, once I got saved and I was following Jesus, and I had really come from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, I mean, I had made a dramatic transformation uh, from this messed up kid to really a radical, on-fire Christian for the Lord. And, And when I did, my youth pastor asked me, man, what do you think God has called you to do? I, think, I said, I think God has called me to be a miracle-working apostle. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he just kind of shook his head and then took me through the Word and explained some things to me. And uh, a few years later, a few years later, when I was in Bible school, I was actually studying to get my degree in biblical literature and New Testament languages. And uh, somebody asked me again, what do you think God has called you to do? And I said, I think God has called me to be a pastor. Because as I reflected on the last few years, I realized that the people that had impacted my life the most had been elders, my local elders and my local pastors in my church, and of course, my small group leaders and and deacons as well. But I just aspired to be an elder. I aspired to be a pastor because of the impact that elders had made on me. And I want to tell you... um, that's the kind of text we're going to be looking at today in 1 Peter chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'm passionate about this text today. I am. I'm on fire. Are you on fire to hear it? Let's get to it. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Here's what he says. I exhort the elders among you as, fellow, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Now, let's stop right there. Peter calls himself what? A fellow elder. This is what he says, essentially in the text. I'm like you. 
I, I have a burning passion and a heart to lead Christ's body. I'm a fellow elder with you, but here's the deal. You're not really like me. Because I'm an elder who is one of the original 12 apostles. I witness the life and death and sufferings of our Lord. And so what you and I need to understand right away from the text is that there is a difference between an apostle and an elder. Biblically, practically. So what I want to do is I want to, before we get into eldership, because that's what he's talking about. He's giving our elders instructions on how to lead We need to establish how is Peter different from the local elders in the Roman Empire that he was writing to. He says, as an apostle, I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Now, Philippians 2 makes it very clear that the entire life of Jesus was a life of suffering. It was a life of suffering. Could you imagine being the second person of the Trinity and becoming incarnate in a human life? God from his high glory in heaven becoming a human being, that is a very humbling thing to do. And so God, the God of heaven, the second person of the Trinity becomes incarnate in a human life and he has to grow up just like you and I do with the same limitations that you and I do. Same limitations. I mean, he's a little baby, he's probably bald. Maybe he's a little Jewish baby with curly hair or something, I don't know, but he's got to grow just like you and I do. He's got to be weaned from his mom, just like you and I do. He's got to grow up and engage in human life in every respect that is human. The God of glory, the second person of the Trinity, becomes incarnate in a human life. And that is a life, for all intents and purposes, generally speaking, of suffering. And Peter says, I watched him suffer in another way. I watched him suffer the rejection of his own people. The rejection of his own people. Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he stands up and he gives this sermon. And here's what he says. He quotes from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, kind of sort of collapses those passages together. And then he says, here's how this sermon's going to end. You're going to reject me. And then they lose their mind and they reject him. And he says, see, I told you. I'm a prophet. I told you that would happen. And a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Now, that story then becomes a typology of the rest of Israel. Their response to him is a type now of the rest of the nation of Israel who responds to him in the same way, except for the 12, except for the 12. Peter watched him suffer the rejection of his own. Peter watched him suffer in the garden of Gethsemane when he could keep his eyelids open. He watched Jesus sweat great drops of blood, blood so stressed out about the coming atonement about the, what he was about to go through, that capillaries broke in his head and, he, and just came out in blood and sweat. He watched that. And he, of course, watched Christ's sacrificial death. I think he did. Luke 23, 48 and 49 seems to make this clear. He says, all the crowds that had gathered uh, for this spectacle, that is Jesus hanging and dying on a cross. When they saw what had taken place, his abuse... They went home striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things happen. And I think Peter and the 12 are standing at a distance. They can't be close because they'll be arrested and crucified too. But they are at a distance and they are watching. They're watching Jesus suffer 
and die for the sins of humanity. Now, the apostles were part of an elder community in Acts chapter 15 that is called the Jerusalem Council. And that elder community is, consists of the Jerusalem elders and the apostles. And they make decisions for the church. The word apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. We actually get our word from that word, obviously. But here's what it means. It means one who is sent, one who is commissioned with a mission. One who is commissioned with a mission. And what's his mission? The apostle's job is not to die for your sins. The apostle's job is to tell you what the royal emissary has to say to you. So when, in the first century, if you were an apostle of, let's say, a king, and you wanted to go to, he had a message for a town, and you would arrive in that town and pop the scroll and read his message to those people, you were an apostle. You were a herald. You were a a person who was a missionary who was on a mission to deliver a message from the royal emissary or the royal king, and you were the emissary. So that's what apostle means. What are the marks of a true apostle? Let's cover these quickly. Essentially there, I see three categories of apostle in church history. The first one, first category, and we're going to look at the key features of what an apostle, what are the marks of a true apostle? The first one is this, the original 12. So Peter was part of this group. They had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Peter was part of this group. They were the original 12. They had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' earthly, bodily, physical ministry in space and time. Okay, so Acts 1, 21, 22, what is going on here? Judas has killed himself. The apostles want to replace Judas so they can have a full number of 12. Now, of the 120 Christians that are still around... There are only two guys, two men of that number that qualify. And so then they do what is called casting lots to see which, I don't know what that means. That's kind of like casting dice, you know, throwing dice to see which person the lot falls to. Okay. So they're casting lots. And it says, therefore, from among the men who have accompanying us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. This is the criteria beginning from the baptism of John. Until the day he was taken up from, from us, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with us to his resurrection. What's going on here? What's the criteria? Anybody who replaces Judas has to be a person who was around when John the Baptist's ministry was happening. They had to have been aware of John the Baptist's ministry, possibly even have seen Jesus be baptized And then they had to have witnessed Jesus' earthly ministry in this world. Now, this is not some ethereal, spiritual revelation. That is not what this is. This is your visible eyes witnessing a person in space, in the space-time continuum, do this ministry. So Peter says, I was one of the twelve. We replaced Judas with a guy named Mattathias. So the apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry from essentially John's baptism ministry all the way to Jesus' ascension. Now, the original 12 stand in a proprietary relationship to Jesus than you and I do. You and I can walk with Christ. You can have an intimate relationship with Jesus. Uh, You can walk close with God in his word, in prayer. You and I can be filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit and know the new life of Christ's resurrection, 
coursing through our spiritual veins. We can know all that. We can have the hope and encouragement of eternity. But the one thing you can never be is one of the 12. You can't. Because you didn't live at that time and you didn't witness his ministry from John the Baptist's ministry all the way to his ascension. You didn't do that. So the disciples, the 12 apostles, have a proprietary function in the body of Christ. They have a special relationship to Jesus and a special relationship to the church that you and I can never have. And I want to show you what it is, Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. It says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, that is both Jew and Gentile, right? Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, that's with Israel, and members of God's household, built on the foundations of the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ um, being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's he saying here? He's saying the prophets, the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the Messiah. And then you have the apostles who witnessed Christ fulfill those prophecies. And then Christ taught them what those Old Testament passages meant and how they were realized in his life, how they came to fruition in his life. And here's what you have. You have the, the prophets who foretold it. And you have the apostles who witnessed this, this prediction being fulfilled. And now they're teaching being passed on to the church. And they are foundational to the church. Where do you put a foundation? Where do you put it? Yeah, you don't put it on the third floor. You don't put it on the 21st floor of a building, a high rise. You put it on the bottom. You put it first. You lay it first. In order for this analogy to work, it means the prophets and the apostles have to have been first. That means they have a proprietary relationship to Jesus and to the church that you and I do not enjoy as much as we can enjoy the presence of God. Now, why do I bring this up? Here's why. Because this whole new apostolic revolution going on in the church today, I want to tell you, if you bought into that, I mean to talk you out of that today. (laughs) Because the apostles were given once and for all to the church. Why? Because the gospel had to be given once to the church. It had to be given once to the church, and it had to be given by a community of eyewitnesses who saw it go down, who saw the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in their day and in their time. And I want to show you how that happened. So first century apostles, in addition to the 12, would include Paul. Now, why don't we include Paul in the, in the 12? Why don't we? Because Paul doesn't. When Paul speaks of the original 12, here's what Paul says. I went down and spoke to the 12. Now, if he thinks that he's one of the 12, why doesn't Paul say, I went down and spoke to the rest of the 12? He doesn't say that. He says, I went down to talk and confer with the 12. He thinks the 12 are the original apostles, and he doesn't think very highly of his own apostleship other than to defend it against false apostles. So in addition to the 12, there were people like Paul in the first century who had witnessed Jesus resurrected from the dead, appearing from heaven between his resurrection and the day of Pentecost. So in that 50-day period, there is a time period in there where Jesus, Paul says, appeared to 500 people. And some of those people became apostles because they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. That was one of the criteria for someone who was not the 12 also being an apostle. 
the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus. Now, he has to defend his apostleship in 2 Corinthians, the book of 2 Corinthians, which is the second letter he wrote to them, chapters 11 and chapters 12. Why does he have to do this? Why would it be necessary for Paul to defend his own apostleship when he doesn't think he's one of the 12? But God has clearly called him to be a herald, a messenger, commissioned with the mission of bringing the gospel to foreign territories. Why would he need to defend it? Second Corinthians 11.5, here's what he says. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles. The word super apostles in Greek, that phrase is huper apostoloi. Huper is where you and I get the word hyper. It's also where we get the word, English word super. That word super comes from it. So it's translated in your Bible, super apostles. Can you imagine that? Like I can't imagine having such hubris that I would show up to somewhere and go, yes, I know Paul is your apostle, but I'm one of the super apostles. (laughs) Like I'm I'm one of the amazing, awesome ones. Like what hubris? And Paul says, for such people are false apostles. They're deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... Obviously, they do this, for Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no great surprise if his servants, I mean, he's, he's very graphic here. It's no great surprise if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Listen, Satan doesn't have to expend much effort to keep people bound to addiction. He doesn't have to expend much effort to people, keep people hooked on porn and heroin and power and money You know why? Because James says, you and I are tempted when we are dragged out and enticed by our own sinful nature. He doesn't have to expend much effort to do that. I'll tell you what he's expending most of his effort doing, creating religions, creating religious belief, because he comes as as a sharp, charismatic figure. He comes and he sends his people, uh, and they look so religious. They sound so spiritual. They talk just like us, but they're false apostles. They're false heralds. And they're actually, they may not even know it. Most of them, I'm sure, do not. But they're actually servants of the devil. That's what Paul says. And so when we look at these people in our culture today claiming to be the new apostles, we have to evaluate them based on biblical criteria. And here it is. So if you're going to be in this group, you at least have to have this. At least. One, appointed by God. So Acts chapter 20, verse 24, it says, it's the ministry which I received from Jesus. So Paul is talking about his ministry as an apostle. He says, it's the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And then in Romans 1, 5, he says, we received our call to apostleship from Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have to be appointed by Jesus. You have to be appointed by God. Well, Anyone can claim that. Anyone can wake up today and say, you know what? I've had a vision last night. God has appointed me to be an apostle. And you need to join my new religion. (laughs) Anybody could say that. That's why criteria two is so important. Criteria two is they need to have agreement with the gospel. The gospel of the 12th. Right? So Galatians 2, 2 and 6, 9 says, I went up. So here's what he's explaining here is when he went up to Jerusalem to confer with the 12. He says, I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to those recognized as leaders, I I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. 
He says, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. What is he saying in this text? He's saying, after 15 years of preaching the gospel among the Gentiles and watching Gentile believers come to the faith in droves, I decided it would probably be a good idea if I went up to Jerusalem and just conferred that my gospel was the same as theirs. And this is what he says, they didn't add anything to me. That means they added nothing to my gospel. It's the same gospel. Paul preached the same message that the 12 did. It's just that God had called him to preach that message to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, whereas they were called to preach to the circumcised. So it's the same gospel. Now, I want to submit to you at least one thing, and that is that if the gospel that you believe that God has given you by means of revelation does not match the 12, it's a false gospel. How do you know you have it? How do you know you have the one that was given to the 12? Because you have this book. That's how. Now, as Christians, for those of you who are not Christians, I want you to hear me well. I love you. We care about you. Listen to me. We don't believe the Bible contains the gospel. We know it does. We don't have to believe that the Bible, the New Testament contains the apostles' doctrine. We don't have to believe it. We know it does. First of all, we have the Bible. Second of all, we have a paper trail from the first century all the way up to the invention of Gutenberg's printing press of copies of Scripture all for 1,500 years. And you know what we found out? It's the same message. (laughs) It was never changed. If I can compare the latest copy of Mark to the earliest copy of Mark, separated by each other by 1,500 years, and they're statistically identical, then the message has not been messed with. Our message is the same that was preached by the apostles that, in that day. We don't have to believe it. We know it. We have the evidence. And I could give you a mountain of it. So you and I know that this gospel... Now, Paul says, I wanted to go up to Jerusalem and just confirm that my gospel was the same as the 12. And it turns out it was. We're all good. So if a person claims to be appointed by God, having received a new revelation of Jesus Christ, or a new revelation for you that is not confirmed or does not comport with the message already given by the 12, it's false. That's the criteria. Thirdly, it must be attested by the supernatural. It must be attested by the supernatural. So if you're going to be an apostle, in Paul's sense, you have to have what's called legislative miracle working power. Now, that's a phrase that theologians use, and it just means this. When you read the New Testament, here's what Paul says to you in Galatians 6. He says, you better pray. Pray. Pray on all occasions. Pray every time you think about it. Pray in every way you know how. Here's why. Because God wants to answer your prayers. But when you look at the disciples, they prayed a lot. Yes, they did. But when they performed miracles, it was like Jesus. They legislated that miracle. Their shadows would just fall on people, and people who had faith, they would be healed. Now, the question is, does God give us those gifts of miracles today? And the answer is yes and no. No in the sense that this gift was proprietary to the disciples in the first century to verify the gospel once for the saints. So no. Yes, in the sense that gifts of miracles are given to the saints in answer to our prayers. So, third category. Are there apostles today? Are there apostles today? Yeah, 
modern apostolic missionaries. Modern apostolic missionaries. Let me ask you a question. Where, where do you find the word missionary in the New Testament? What passage would you take me to in the New Testament to show me that the New Testament sanctions the mission of missionaries? Where? Anybody have an idea? Yeah, nowhere. Because the word missionary is not used in the New Testament. It isn't used in the New Testament. You know why we use that term? That's a modern contrivance because we don't like the word apostle. This is what the apostles were. This was their vocation. Their vocation was they were sent with a commission into foreign lands to bring the gospel to the frontiers of the world, to plant churches in places in new territories where churches had never been planted. And so we do have missionaries today. Now, do we have missionaries in the sense of the 12 or Paul? No, we don't. We don't. Because the vocation of establishing the gospel once for the church has passed away. We do have missionaries in the sense that the function, the apostolic function has passed on to people who have a burning heart's desire to go out into the world and establish churches in new territories. That was their, that was their job. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Now today we call them missionaries, but they're really, they're apostolic missionaries. Does God do miracles in their midst? You better believe it. Uh, write this book down. It's by a scholar named Craig Keener. Craig Keener is one of my favorite New Testament scholars, a very, very credentialed New Testament scholar, and he wrote a book called Miracles. Now, the book Miracles, what he does is he collects stories that he's been collecting for decades of all of the miraculous things that God does out on the mission field for people in answer to prayer. Now, these aren't people walking around legislating miracles the way the apostles did. (laughs) These are people walking around waving their hand and having miracles just happen, but they're They're asking God to heal bodies, in some cases to raise the dead, and to provide for finances, and to do all kinds of amazing things, and God does it. God answers our prayers. God still does the miraculous. You know why? Because he's a supernatural God. He's not stopping the same supernatural God he was in the first century. So God answers prayer, but no one can say, I'm an apostle in the sense of the 12, or I'm an apostle in the sense of Paul. You can't say that because the, the church was built on their foundation. It's not built on you, right? Does that make sense? That was a pretty weak yes. Okay, well, let's move along. So what are elders? So Peter says to my fellow elders, except I'm a witness, except I was one of the original witnesses of Jesus. What does it mean to be an elder? I want to run through this. An elder uh, is the Greek word presbyteros, where we get the word presbytery. That's why the Presbyterian Church calls themselves the Presbyterian Church, because they're structured uh, on, el- on the eldership model. So an elder is the Greek word presbyteros, meaning to be relatively advanced in age. <laughs> so, sorry. If you aspire to be uh, an elder, you sort of have to be an old guy like us. So that is what it literally means. Now, in the, the Hebrew word for it literally means graybeard. Literally means graybeard, okay? That's the literal term, but the figural meaning of it, there is a figural meaning or a metaphorical meaning, which means an officer or of congregational leadership. This is a person who is spiritually mature and has been given the gift by God of, and the responsibility and the calling to lead the affairs and govern the affairs of the church, And so this is why we refer to it as an office of eldership, an office of eldership. So what is the origin? Well, you need to know that every culture under the sun in the history of the world has had elders. 
every culture. It's ubiquitous across cultures. It's just something God has built into the fabric of the human experience. So it's the most natural thing in the world is to have a group of leaders who are elders. On the old, in the Old Testament, we see Moses equipping or enabling elders to judge civil cases between the people. After the temple was torn down and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, what happened was uh, they didn't have a temple where they could come and have festival and worship, so they created these things called synagogues. The word synagogue just means meeting or assembly, right? So they just created these assemblies, and you had to have a quorum of 10 Jewish men. You had to have 10 elders in order to start a synagogue, and it was true in Jesus' day as well. And then what the early church did is the early church just very simply adopted the Jewish structure of eldership. They adopted it. And this is what Peter is referring to. He's writing to these elders and he says, I'm a fellow elder just like you and I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you and encourage you. Acts 14.23 says this, when they had appointed elders for them in every church that they planted. So here's the apostles planting churches and then they appoint elders and then they prayed with fasting. They, commit, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, eldership, here's what you need to know. The word elder does not appear in the New Testament in the singular. It does not appear in the singular. It always appears in the plural. There's no such thing as a singular elder. I used to be on staff at a church where we had a single elder. And the rest of us were just kind of, I don't know what we were. We were leaders. But... That is not the New Testament model. The New Testament model from the beginning in the New Testament is a plurality of leaders and they are brothers who lead together. Now you can have a senior elder among those elders like Timothy among the elders in Ephesus. Now when, Tim, when Paul wants to write the elders in Ephesus, who does he write to? Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to equip uh, men, some competent men. So there is such a thing in the New Testament. There is lots of precedent for point leadership among the elders. We have a chairman of our elder board, and also I both serve and lead the elders in that sense, but we're brothers. We have a mutual responsibility and calling to lead the church. Now, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 5 says this, shepherd the flock, shepherd the flock. Get that fly away from me. Okay, yeah, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion. Don't do it under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do. Not for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, Christ himself, when he appears, you will receive this unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What is he saying here? He's saying, you know what the best possible world is? The best possible world in the church, as he and the other apostles pass off the scene, is for local churches to be led by elders, a plurality of elders, a group of men who uh, are a brotherhood, a fellowship of leadership, right? But who lead in humility, who lead the flock with a humble heart, and who also have a flock that have submissive, humble hearts as well. When you have a community where there's mutual submission, just like you have in your marriage, according to Ephesians chapter 5, you have a happy marriage, you can have a happy church too, right? So he encourages them to do that. 
Now, uh, this is the same kind of language we find in Acts chapter 20, 17, 28, and 29. He says, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which God has made you overseers. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So elders are shepherds, pastors who care for the sheep, and they oversee the local congregation. So all three of those words are present in both texts, both Peter's text and this text. Pastor, overseer, and um, shepherd, elder. So what are we to make all this of all this? Well, here's what we're to make of it. One of the primary responsibilities and tasks of the elder is to make sure that the local church is taught God's word, the apostles' teaching, and to make sure that the church is theologically educated and to make sure that the church is prepared to defend itself against false accusations and also defend the faith against false teaching. That's one of our jobs. That's the reason why we hired the associate pastors that we did. We hired Daniel and Ryan and Patrick. You know why? Because of the hundreds of resumes we got for their positions. These young guys in our first conversation was clear that they were theologians. It was clear they had a passion for God's word. It was clear that whatever responsibilities they were going to have in the church, they loved God's word. And they wanted to teach our people God's word. And that's why Paul calls these elders together and he says, here's your responsibility. Ferocious wolves are going to come in and try to deceive and devour the flock. You teach God's word. You teach it, you teach them the theological foundation of this truth, of this message. It is so vital, it is so critical. But it's not our only responsibility or, or um, calling. The shepherd also oversees the affairs of the church. They oversee, they do govern. It is a governing position. And so as an elder, one of the things you find yourself doing is deliberating over uh, what color we're going to paint the sanctuary. Apparently, that was a short discussion, <laughs> right? Should have deliberated a little more, right? <laughs> okay, that's one thing you talk about. There are lots of governing things in which you have to talk about. I'm sorry, if you love that paint, I didn't mean to offend you. I just, uh, <laughs> the rest of us think it's ugly. So, um, so, so we, so where was I going? Okay, yeah, so elders are overseers. We, we govern the affairs of the church. We make decisions about the affairs of the church together, uh, and we do that together, and that's part of the job. Part of the job is governance. It's overseeing. Next part of the job is the shepherd feeds the flock out of loving obedience to Jesus. Now, he says right here, not under compulsion, willingly, as God would have you, but look at John 21, 16. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Peter said, Lord, I mean, you, you know if I do or not. And Jesus said, well, if you do, you feed my flock. You feed my lambs. And this is what elders do. Elders willingly, not out of compulsion, not because anybody has to twist their arm or make them do it. They do it sacrificially. They feed the flock. They teach our classes. They lead our small groups. They're engaged in training and teaching the flock and feeding them what they need from God's word, and they do it sacrificially. Shepherds serve sacrificially. Look at what he says here. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Do it in a way that is 
You're not trying to get anything out of it. You're trying to give. You're trying to pour into the lives of others. And sometimes that costs you. That costs you some time. Being here for a two and a half hour board meeting on a Wednesday night, that's going to cost you some time with your family. Some of the decisions that we have to make during the week, that will cost you some time with your family. So he's saying, hey, do it sacrificially. Do it not for shameful gain, but do it out of a heart of eagerness. Look at John 10, 11. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. <laughs> and you and I follow the chief shepherd. We follow the good shepherd. We, we lay our lives down for the sheep. And the shepherd serves tenderly. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Don't be a bossy person. This is my greatest temptation. Me personally, because... I was born with, what are you laughing at? Uh, with I, the only thing I could call it is Captain Kirk syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? You don't watch Star Trek. I like to be in the captain's chair, and I like to be just telling people in the room what to do. You know, it's like, push that button, push that button. You know, warp, warp factor five. So that is my natural state, <laughs> right? So my temptation is, <laughs> some of the elders are laughing at me. Okay, so my temptation, if I could just rein it back in here, um, is to take over a meeting. <laughs> and the staff, I'll come into a meeting and say, hey, listen, I'm not making no decisions today. You guys are making all the decisions. By the end, I'm making all the decisions. Because I can't help it. But here's what Peter says. <laughs> Peter says, don't be bossy. Nobody likes a bossy pants. Have a, have a mutual heart of fellowship. Leadership in fellowship. Don't make every decision. He says, do it in a way that is soft and tender Tender-handed, right? And this is Jesus, the good shepherd. This is Jesus who handles his lambs with care and loves them and leads them. And then the shepherd sets the pace in submission and humility. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, he will, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe all of you, all of you, just clothe yourselves with humility. If you and I would just put on humility like a garment... And every interaction we have with one another, if our goal is to die to self and live for the other, we, will, we would have less conflict. And so the shepherd sets the pace in submission and humility. You know, the best elders know that they live in a relationship that is mutually submissive. Mutually submissive. We are leaders. We are charged with oversight. But we come into the conversation or we make leadership decisions we make those decisions with a humble heart. And the best world is where we have a congregation who says, hey man, I may not even agree with the decision that the elders made, but I have a humble soul. I, 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 I'm submitting to your authority because it was given by God to you, to this group. Now, I didn't bring this up for any particular reason other than to say we're in a season right now where uh, we are actually um, going to be uh, choosing elders for the upcoming ministry season. And folks, I know that some of you in this room could do it. And I know that some of you have a calling and maybe have even served as an elder before. And here's what I want to say to you. Absolutely no compulsion, absolutely no pressure whatsoever. Here's what I want to say to you. It is a joy to lead in this fellowship. And I know that this is, one, this is probably the hardest year to be an elder. 
with all the crises and all the things that we have going on in our culture, who wants to be making calls, you know, making the call on this stuff? Nobody, right? But I know some of, God has put it on your heart, and if he has put it on your heart and he is tugging on your heart, I want you to just pray about it. Be open-minded to it. Second group I want to talk about here, uh, I want to talk to here, is those who might feel a call to missionary work. If God has given you a burden and a heart for missionary work, and he's calling you to bring the gospel of the twelve, the gospel that was once delivered to the saints, he's calling you to bring that gospel to a new frontier. Maybe to plant a church where there wasn't one before. I want you to open your heart to that as well. I want you to open your heart to that as well. And for the rest of us, as elders and pastors and church members, we're here to support the work of God. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you this morning. As the worship team comes back up, we thank you so much that Peter considered himself a fellow elder, a fellow pastor. We thank you for the 12 and all that they went through and all that they watched you go through. We thank you for their eyewitness testimony to Jesus' human life, his humiliation as a human being, and his miraculous ministry, and his death on a cross, and his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to heaven. We thank you for their apostolic witness, and we don't believe it's in the Bible. We know it's in the Bible. We know. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the apostles in the first century who laid the foundation of our faith. And we thank you for our local elders and all those bishops and pastors that you have put in place who carry a, a heavy burden, but a high honor. The burden of oversight and the exhausting task of feeding Christ's sheep and teaching the word and sacrificial service and handling people with care. God, would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you give us power? And thank you so much for these elders. And Lord, we want to step up. Maybe it's not missionary work or being an elder, but maybe it's becoming a deacon or a small group leader or someone who just you know, comes into the church each week and, and holds a door open and welcomes people. God, would you just put it on our heart to serve in humility and serve the gospel faithfully? And we want to thank you for all those who do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.